I would love to have you take your Bibles. And if you have one, turn with me to John 16. And we're going to read just a few verses here, and then we'll move to the sections that are on your sermon notes. You'll want those too. I put two of our larger sections for the morning there, in case you don't have a Bible handy. But I uh, wanted, wanted to go to John 16, first of all. appreciated Pastor Ben mentioning the article on the back, because I, I start my thoughts there, really. Uh, Easter in a foxhole. Um, for the uninitiated, if you haven't followed the annals of war and just kind of missed all that part of history class, a foxhole is something that a, a soldier digs in the ground to provide some kind of cover when there is someone shooting at, at that person. Whether it's missiles or bullets, you dig, you dig down, you dig a foxhole. You can duck, and hopefully the earth around you gives protection. And, of course, that does pretty well unless you take a direct hit, and then you won't know it because foxhole and you are gone But as I note in that article, not only is this an unusual Easter for many around the world whose lives have been completely upended from what they would have ever expected not even that many months ago, but even more broadly, as I note in that last paragraph, uh, there are all kinds of foxholes, aren't there? There are literal ones that people dig in times of battle, and there are other foxholes that people climb into, ostensibly to find safety to avoid danger. We climb into foxholes of fear and depression and brokenness and isolation. We climb into foxholes when we are hurt, when we're frightened. Um, We climb into all kinds of foxholes. Some this past year have been in and out of foxholes, maybe climbing out at some point, wondering if it's safe out there. Others are captured by grief. I'm aware this year, of course, of many in our church family who are facing this Easter, this resurrection morning, missing someone. And the the, the emotion, the struggle of emotion, thinking through all the elements of Easter and yet an empty chair. I'm aware of all of that. In John 16, Jesus is preparing to leave. He knows it. His followers don't. And so he's in a conversation with them, trying to prepare them, things that they'll think of and make sense of later. And I want to read just a part of this, and then we'll go straight to the resurrection account here in the Gospel of John. But by way of introduction, and we'll pray in a moment, but I want you to capture a part of this. I'm going to start reading at John 16, 16. So Jesus is talking, and he says, A little while... And you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. I think death and resurrection. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you'll not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. Don't rush too quickly by that. So also, you have sorrow now, but I I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. 
and no one will take your joy from you. Okay, I'm going to stop my reading there. Jesus, of course, speaking immediately to those disciples, trying to tell them, very soon, you'll have the worst day of your life. Your hope will be dashed. It'll seem like it's all over. Wait. Wait. Sunday is coming. And then you will see me. Your sorrow will turn into joy. And I'm always captured by that phrase, no one will take your joy from you. Isn't that striking? No one will take your joy from you. You say, Jesus, but I'm going to live a little longer and there's going to be sickness and death and separation and all kinds of disagreements and misunderstandings and wars and rumors of wars. And, and what do you mean no one will take your joy from you? What do you mean? What kind of a weird statement is that? Have you had joyless days? Well... Jesus is, is, is looking at the joy of resurrection as a kind of a, a permanent thing that should mark the people of God. In the midst of all kinds of grief and loss and foxhole hiding, something deep down that says, no, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, eventually. Your joy, no one will take from you. I want you to just kind of have that in the back of your mind as we go on here. Um, But I want to pray that God will help us. We'll turn in a moment here to Gospel of John chapter 20. But that is a backdrop and introduction. Would Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, this Easter morning, we come with gratefulness uh, that we come to a living Savior, a God who really is and who hears and attends to us and our lives and our cry. Thank you for those present, others who will join us throughout the morning and pray that each of us would be just pulled a step closer to you by interaction with others and certainly the work of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. We ask for your help now in hearing and loving what is heard from the Scriptures and then the faith to believe it. So we trust you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So in John chapter 20, then, we're coming, and I've given you on your, your sermon notes there a few comments about the text, um, things we mentioned last week, but you can take a look at here about the Gospel of John. But I want to go right into reading the account that John gives. You're aware that each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four inspired accounts, each gives a bit of a different look. They include different bits of information. Some of it's the same, certainly, but it's almost like four people watching any other world event and noticing different things. And so here, John, I think, uh, focuses his attention uh, on two areas. And I want you to see those today. So you can look on in your, your sermon notes. It's the same thing from the ESV that I have in front of me. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, by the way, that would be John, of course, the one whom Jesus loved, the text says, and say to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, John says, and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths 
lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. And then I'm going to go right to verse 11 for what I think is the next biggest section here of significance to us. Mary, now Mary Magdalene in this case, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and I'm going to stop my reading right at that point. You can look on to get the rest of that account. Jesus says her name. Jesus says her name. Now, I want to look with you at your sermon notes and and arrive at this place together, this resurrection day, this empty tomb. I mentioned here a necessary prelude, and that is kind of the backdrop. We've commented on this last Sunday and Good Friday evening uh, with many of you. But wanting to remember that Easter is a climactic event that's like the, the frosting on the cake, but the cake is important too, right? Is that a good analogy? The hot fudge and the ice cream, but the ice cream's... Anyway, we'll, we'll move on. Um, but a necessary prelude to understand Easter morning is what I've called here Jesus and the death of hope. To understand the shock of Easter, the joy of Easter, you first... Just, you just have to remember... Just a few days ago, you have to remember the cross. You have to remember, and I gave you a couple of texts here, John nineteen thirty to 42, which we read Friday evening. You have to remember the awfulness of the death of Jesus, the shock that that was to the system of everyone who was a part of that, who saw this. We saw Friday night that as Jesus died on the cross, his disciples and the women who followed him, they were standing at a distance watching the shock of this. Jesus, the one they had followed and and hoped in, counted on, beaten beyond recognition, really. We mentioned Friday night, Isaiah 52, where the the prophet looking ahead says his appearance was marred more than any man. Jesus, not able to carry his cross all the way to the place of crucifixion. Another pressed into service. Beaten, bloody, falling down. The awfulness of seeing one you love in that setting and being able to do absolutely nothing about it. Crucified. Sun dims. The cries from the cross. John 19 records, it is finished. And then he died. To stand and watch... A soldier then coming around to ensure that those who were 
uh, on those crosses were dead, to break the legs of, the th- of any of them still alive so that they would not be able to push themselves up to continue to breathe. But finding Jesus already dead, thrust the spear. Imagine seeing that. Don't, don't do that. He's already dead. But we're going to make sure. I gave you a reference here from Luke 24, which is the resurrected Christ walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and the the verse where they say to Jesus, not knowing it's him, we had hoped, past tense, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. In other words, hope is crushed. You, you understand in some areas of your life where you have waited for good news, you've hoped and you counted on something working out and, and, and then it doesn't. And that's right where they were heading into Easter morning. They weren't counting the days and saying, hey, is today the day? Wow, this is going to be great. No, they weren't. They were hiding, tearful, trying to erase pictures in their minds and saying, oh, man. Now, I put on your sermon notes here, some believe that Jesus would throw off the bonds of Rome. They, they did. There were some who hoped that he would be the big conqueror and, and come on the white horse and get rid of these, these occupiers of their wonderful nation. You would feel the same way if any foreign group patrolled our streets. There'd be a moment where you'd say, let's get rid of these guys. Get, the, get, the, get the, the militia together. Let's get them out of here. And then Jesus, can he do it? Maybe we can get an uprising. Some hoped indeed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. There were some, even at Jesus' birth, as the Gospel of Luke tells, who were waiting for the consolation of Israel. Some were convinced, this is him, it's him. John six fifteen tells us, after the feeding of the 5,000, there were some who were, who were wanting to take Jesus, the miracle worker, the one who'd fed a lot of people with next to nothing, and make him king. Wouldn't that be amazing? I don't even know the guy, but if he can feed everybody a great dinner every day, hey, we'll take it, right? Anybody who just gives us free food, we'll vote in. They were going to come make him king. Imagine. All of it died on the cross. Now, of course, we remember that Jesus' death on the cross was not just a horrible event. It was. It was not just an act of violence and sin, and it was certainly that. But it was also a moment when Jesus, the Son of God, the Bible tells us, was paying for your sin and for mine. No other way for you to pay the debt you owe to God. Zero. Behave all you like. Try hard. Live a good life. Cheers. Good luck. Because the Bible tells us you'll stand at heaven's gate and not have enough in the bucket to get inside. No, Christ alone was the one who paid for our sin there on the cross. Now, John then, in these texts, if you look with me, he's making two key assertions. Writing this later, had time to reflect. And I, I, I take other details he gives, but he's, he's after certain things. If you look the way a writer writes, some of the details he gives, he's doing more than chronicling events. He's highlighting certain things. Some of these things he repeats, in case you missed it the first time. So he says it again. So I think his two key assertions, as you have in front of you there, first, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Now, John, we're told in verse 8, he believes. So he's the, one who, he's the first one. This is one of your notes there, letter C under number 1. John was the first to believe in the resurrected Christ. But the initial uh, workup to this, Peter and John running, of course, hearing the words of Mary Magdalene, Matthew says, and another Mary, she had a friend, went with her early 
Darkness, of course, we mentioned this last week, the Apostle John using the terms light and darkness up to just a certain point in the Gospel of John, then he stops. And there's, it's darkness until this moment, till the dawn of Easter. Well, these two then, Peter and John, come. And we don't want to rush past the fact that women were the first ones at the tomb. Why, why is that so significant? I think all the Gospel writers, I think, mention that. Ladies went first. Why, why is that significant? I'll tell you one reason. Um, well, give you two. One is I think that's really what happened. So there you go. Just say what happened. That's, a, that's an easy one. But, but, but further, there have been some over the years who've said, you know what, these gospel accounts were crafted by the disciples later to kind of make up a, a fable, a story, to just kind of perpetuate a myth. And one of the things that pokes holes in that is this detail right here. Because if you're going to write a fable to try to convince people that something happened that didn't, there is no way if you understood first century terminology, you would never have had women go there first. Women were the least likely to be believed in a court of law. They were not considered credible witnesses. Sorry, ladies, it's what it was. I didn't make that up. They were just not considered credible witnesses. So if you're going to make up a story, for goodness sake, you'd skip the first couple of verses. You know, Mary, Mary, and then Peter and John, the men, the men arrived. See, they know what's going on. So if you were going to make up something to perpetuate a myth, that's what you would have done. Yeah, but the gospel writers say, no, the ladies went first. Ran back and said something, something has happened. Peter, John, run. Wow, interesting now. John describes the foot race. I don't know if it's, you know, he's just giving a chronicling, just mentioning, um, or if it's a little bit of that, you know. Peter thinks he's ahead of everybody. Peter thinks he's the first, but I can run faster. I like that. He does it so subtly. Yeah, uh-huh. Both of them are running. Boy, it's, I mean, he didn't even have to say that. Okay, we got to the tomb, but he does. Now, now watch verse, verse 5. So Peter goes into the tomb first, stooping down, he sees the linen cloths lying there. Peter comes, goes into the tomb. So he sees the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Why, why are we talking about that? Well, you, you may remember in Matthew's gospel, there's one of the details given that attends to all of this, and that is that after the resurrection day, the guards who were at the tomb ran into the city to say, you're never going to believe this. And they had a little convo with some authorities to say, I tell you what, we're going to keep you out of trouble because you cannot say you, you fell asleep or passed out on the job. That'll be for you. Uh, that doesn't work well. But I tell you what, just say the disciples came and stole his body. And we'll see if that works. They paid him money. Matthew's gospel says they paid him money to, to just say, oh, the disciples came and stole his body. What's wrong with that picture? Well, here's one idea. If the disciples went and, okay, overcame the guards, the guards probably would have seen this. You know, Peter flying in his, in his robe, a big flying tackle, they probably would have had that to say. It's that fisherman guy. Man, roll the stone away. If you're going to steal a dead body, who takes time to unwrap it? Anybody at all? No, grab and go, baby. I've got the, I've got the rock. I'm holding the guy down. Bam, bam, bam. Run. And the face cloth. What does it say? That it folded up, seriously, like a washcloth? Here, look at the creases. 
It's like an exclamation mark by the angel or Jesus, whoever did the folding. I think it's a big exclamation mark saying, uh-huh, that's right. But it's, it's mentioned twice, though. The linen cloth's lying there. Wow, again, both of them saw this. The tomb is empty. John, I think, then, is recorded as the first one who sees the, the, the reality of the resurrection, the empty tomb. He sees it, and he believes. He says, for goodness sakes, he did it. He did it. The one who just before this, John 11, had raised Lazarus from the dead. He did it. Can you imagine? The tomb is empty. No, and they didn't just carry him out of here. Oh, no. Oh, no. He did it. He rose from the dead. He conquered death, your worst enemy. So I think that's the first part that John is really after. And, of course, we saw uh, last week in our study, and if you read the Gospel of John, you'll not miss, believe is his key word. That's what he's after. And so he mentions here this of himself, John saw and believed, he saw and believed. That, of course, is the goal for which he's putting this book together. His goal is to draw the reader, the hearer, to a place of saying, and I believe it too. See, that's what John is about. So it's significant that he mentions here, that's the moment when I believed. See, I believed in him as Messiah, believed in him and all kinds of, but now I see he rose from the dead. And John says, and I believed it at that moment. That's pretty cool. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Now, there's another part of this story. I think John just pressing in on the reality of this, wanting everybody who reads and hears him at any time in the future to get it. He tells a story that involves Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene, of course, we meet throughout the gospel accounts, one from whom Christ had cast out a number of demons. And she was close to him by any estimation. There was, there was, a, there was a, a kinship, a friendship, nothing, nothing inappropriate. But there was, a, there was a bond between them. Anybody who reads the gospel accounts can see this. She is here outside walking around weeping. She's there in the garden. Now, I note for you here uh, on your sermon notes, A, for Mary, what is awful has now become worse. He died. I saw him die. I saw the awfulness of that. And now somebody moved him. Oh, for goodness sakes. Just let him be. Could you just let him be? Imagine that that's what's going on in her heart. What are you doing? You put him where? Safekeeping. Just stop it. No more, no more desecrating of the dead. What was awful has now become worse. And I think it's very striking that neither the empty tomb nor the angels are enough for Mary to believe. I mean, she's, she, the, the, the tomb is empty and here she has this conversation where I see these uh, two individuals identified as angels. Now, I don't know if they were, I mean, we, we quickly give them artists, um, you know, robes of white gleaming and certainly big, big wings because all angels have wings. We talked about that in Isaiah 6. Oh, they do. Well, the seraphim do, but the rest of the Bible doesn't say that about the other guys. But it would certainly identify them, wouldn't it? Who's the guy with wings? I'm, I'm thinking that that wasn't the case because she has this conversation with him. And I'm telling you what, if you saw, had a conversation with two guys with big old wings and white robes gleaming, you might remember it. But, but she carries on like nothing. There's a couple of guys in there like, what are you doing? So 
it appears to be just a normal conversation. They say to her, woman, why are you weeping? She doesn't say, oh, for goodness sakes, who are you? No, she says, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. That's what's on her mind. So neither the empty tomb nor the, a conversation with angels is enough. In fact, the initial conversation with Jesus isn't enough. She is so locked into, but I saw him die. I mean, I saw him die. I was there. You're not just going to turn hope around all of a sudden. Some have accused the disciples of being really easy to believe. Really, after all, first century people, they believe anything. Oh, really? Actually, I don't think they had any kind of corner on that market because I think we have proven, maybe in recent years, we believe anything too, don't we? Uh Uh-huh. Well, so Jesus has an initial conversation with Jesus Woman, why are you weeping? Woman, of course, sometimes we read that and say, well, that wasn't very friendly. Uh, that would have been a proper greeting in the day. Ma'am, you, you could read. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She thinks he's the gardener. Can you imagine? So even in an initial conversation, she, she doesn't know who it is. If you've taken him away, just tell me. I'll come get him. And then he says her name. And when he says her name something clicks. And one of the challenges we have in many parts of the Bible where there are conversations, we, we don't know the inflection, we don't know the emotion that behind anything that is said. Um, almost, you persuade me to be a Christian. What do you mean? We will read later in the book of Acts. But here, how did that, what did he say? Well, her name, and she knew instantly. And I think She affirms here what John's point is. That is, it's really him. And if anybody would know, Mary could say, I would know. I heard his voice when he said my name, and I know it was him. See, wow, I think there's power there because of a, a deep appreciation, friendship. She turns in the section that I did not read. It's not in your notes there. She says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher. And I wonder what that sounded like. And then that odd verse that some stumble over, verse 17, Jesus says, do not cling to me. I've not yet ascended to, to the Father. The old King James says, touch me not, which I think is a pretty awkward and probably unfortunate translation. Jesus isn't going, whoa, hey, sister, uh, back it up. Uh, no. <laughs> so so I, I, I quickly move away from touch me not. I think this is him saying to her, Mary, you've got to let go. You've got to let go. I haven't yet ascended to my father and your father. I'm going to. I'm going to soon. But what was isn't going to be. And the way it has been is not the way it's going to be. Mary, a friendship, is the only one he says this to. He didn't say it to anybody else. You need to let go of me. You do. You have to let go. You've got to release me. This is a powerful moment, really, from Jesus to one one of his dear followers, that he sees, he sees her, he sees her. Well, I, I, I love that moment, that interchange. I love him saying her name and instant recognition. Now, I mentioned a couple of things here on your sermon notes. I say, imagine Mary as an exuberant witness of Christ's resurrection. Okay, she's convinced now. She is convinced. And I'm just guessing that this lady was on fire from this moment on. I had a one-on-one I know exactly who it was. 
you will not convince me any, any other way. We had a conversation. I know it was him. I saw him. I saw him die. I saw him in his resurrection state. And I know that it was him. So I think those are the two big elements that John presents. The tomb is empty, and John believes. He sees the resurrection, the first one, and it's really him. Mary is the one chosen to have that kind of, like when in other settings you'd say, would you come identify the body? Some of you have had to go through that. Here, Mary, would you please identify the living? See, and she does. Yes, it's him. I'll know that voice anywhere. Now, I mentioned here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I just want you to see that this body of information exists. So letter D, under that second heading, it's really him. I I just want to mention a couple of the, of the, uh, the accounts from the other disciples who very quickly after the resurrection of Christ begin to speak of this right there where it happened. And I just want you to think about Jerusalem, ancient times, uh, the way news travels person to person. So, so in the book of Acts, and I'm just, these, I did not give you these written out on your sermon notes, but uh, if you want to look, if you have a Bible handy, here's where we're going. In the book of Acts chapter 2, um, you're, you're finding the day of Pentecost. Now, the day of Pentecost, of course, Penta 5, the day of Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. So this is, come on now, less than two months. And if somebody rises from the dead in university place and hundreds of people see it, I bet we're still talking about it in 60 days. We're still walking around up and down the streets and going, did you, did you hear that? What do you make of that anyway? I mean, everybody's talking. So 60 days, okay, 50, Pentecost is not enough to forget. And may I say, if anybody at this point, 50 days later, can disprove what is said, Believe me, they would have done it. All you would have to do to disprove a resurrection is what? Well, produce a body. And the whole thing goes away. Imagine a bounty out for that. Anybody who can produce the body of Jesus will make him king for a day and he's going to retire rich by the Sea of Galilee. Okay, well, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching a sermon. Peter, the one who had just denied Christ, 50 days prior, Passover time. I don't know him. He's preaching a sermon. It's it's pretty cool. But I I just go to a couple little parts of this. So I'm in verse 22 of Acts 2. I want you to hear what he says right there in Jerusalem. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of, of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, John's key word, of course, uh, signs that God did through him in your midst is, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Wow. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. He says, and you know it's true. You know it. This is what happened here not even two months ago, and he's preaching to a large crowd, thousands. And if anybody in those thousands could have said, excuse me, but I know that that's not true. It's like the, you know, the old days at a wedding where where people said, does anybody know just cause why these two should not be joined together? What an awful, I mean, I get it. I guess uh, 
you know, you, you could check him out online nowadays, find out if he's, wow, wow, look at this guy. He's really from, no, but now, back in the day, you couldn't do that. We've gotten rid of that. I think it's good, that moment where everybody looks around and goes, I remember that. Anybody show just cause where they either speak now or forever hold his peace? You go, oh, phew, man, that was awful. I think this is kind of like that. So Peter's preaching, and he says all this. He was killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up. Anybody? Go ahead. And, of course, crickets. No one in the crowd of thousands who can disprove what Peter said. They're going, yeah, we were kind of there at that crucifixion. Yeah, we heard it. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 mentions 500 people who saw Christ alive at one point. Maybe some of them were walking around going, yep, I saw him. Yep, we had, we had fish and uh, bread together. Sea of Galilee. No, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> I know, fish and chips. You were right there with me. Four, chapter 4, verse 10. Similarly, Peter and John, they've raised a, a, a given a healing to this lame guy because of preaching Jesus. That's, that's kind of fun. Well, in chapter 4, then, verse 10, people are asking him, hey, what's, how, what are you doing? Uh, how'd that happen? Well, here's what they're saying. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you to you and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was reje- rejected by you, the builders. That's Psalm 118, right? We saw that last week. Psalm 118, 22, I think, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. He says it again in verse 33. Just, Just... Along, the, along we go. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of, Je- of the Lord Jesus. And on they go. I'll give you another reference, and there are many others. In the book of Acts, they just couldn't quit talking about it. He died, and he rose again. He rose again. And of course, in these early days in Jerusalem, prior to uh, what happens in chapter, uh, beginning of chapter 8, it's really Jerusalem-centric, and it's right there where it happened. And he's walk, they're walking up and down preaching Christ, crucified, risen from the dead. And in a sense, daring anyone to disprove it. I want to close with one other text. I have it there in front of you, 1 Corinthians 15. I just, I just want to point you to some of these places. You can read these more fully later. All of 1 Corinthians 15 is a tightly woven argument in favor of resurrection. Christ's and yours, by the way. And so here, I'm just mentioning the Apostle Paul's clear logic. I think very, very 21st century, excuse me, 21st century, if you will. But he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He just spells it out. If what we've been talking about this whole time is just made up, it's hocus pocus, it's a cool story. He says, close it down and go home. What, what are we doing? Playing house. He's, he's correct. If Christ did not rise from the dead, I mean, the party's over, boys. Huh? Wrap it up and go home. Do something else on Sunday morning. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In fact, he says, we've been misrepresenting God this whole time because we've been telling people that God raised Christ whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
Verse 17, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You are in deep trouble before God if there's no resurrection. Wow. So it's a tightly woven argument culminating really in verses 19 and 20. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he turns it around and talks about that for a bit. Read 1 Corinthians 15. I encourage you to do that in your, in your sermon notes, community group notes that, that follow. Catch the logic. So John, John is saying this, John 16. When you hear the message of Christ and you internalize it and believe it, that joy no one can take from you. It's that, it's that deep-seated sense in your gut that on difficult days and awful days and days of loss and tears and sorrow, when you feel like getting into a foxhole or indeed have climbed in, it's that thing inside of you that says, no, it won't always be this way. It will end up being okay because Christ is alive and one day I'll be with him. It's that thing. That kind of joy doesn't mean that you're always walking around chipper with a smile on your face going, oh, that didn't matter at all. Life does come with things that matter and sometimes we, we sit and we weep and we're lost for a bit. I I know that. But the joy that no one can take away from you is that thing inside you as a follower of Jesus that says, you know, come what may, there will be a day. There will be a day. And it'll be different than this one because Christ is alive. Christ is alive. I've given you several things here under responding to God's word. And I hope you will look, look and listen to what God has to say to you through his word Father, we honor you today as the author, keeper, fulfiller of of redemption on our behalf through our Savior, Jesus. I pray for each of these who are here this morning uh, as we head out into another world with, oh my goodness, foxholes and concerns all around indeed. Would you just uh, plant in our heart and and cause to well up that sense of joy because we have a, a risen living Savior and one day we'll be with you. So give us joy in this, we pray this day, in Jesus' name, amen.